1 Samuel 10. We met Saul last Sunday night. Israel demanded that Samuel give them a king, and God chose one for them, a man who literally stood head and shoulders above his fellow Israelis, Saul. And God, we saw last week in chapter 9, that he orchestrated events that connected Saul and Samuel together. And, and after being Samuel's guest of honor, Saul prepares to go home. But Samuel told Saul, send your servant on forward, and, and he pulls him aside. He wants to have a, a private conversation with him. And in those words, we'll see tonight, things are set in motion for Saul to become king. And because Saul humbles himself, in that time, God gives him a new heart. So chapter 10 of 1 Samuel, le- lessons from the heart. It says in verse 1, then Samuel took a vial of oil and he poured it upon his head, Saul's head, and kissed him and said, is it not because the Lord has anointed you to be captain over his inheritance? And when you are departed from me today, then you shall find two men by Rachel's sepulcher on the border of Benjamin at Zelzah, and they will say unto you, the donkeys which you went to seek are found. And lo, your father has left the care of the donkeys, and he sorrows for you, saying, what shall I do for my son? Well, then shall you go on forward from there, and you shall come to the plain of Tabor, and there shall meet you three men going up to God to Bethel, one carrying three kids, another carrying three loaves of bread, another carrying a bottle of wine. And they will salute you and give you two loaves of bread, which you shall receive of their hands. And after that, you shall come to the hill of God, where is the garrison of the Philistines. And it shall come to pass that when you are come thither to the city, that you shall meet a company of prophets coming down from the high place with a psaltery and a tabret and a pipe and a harp before them, and they shall prophesy. And the Spirit of the Lord will come upon you, and you shall prophesy with them and shall be turned into another man. Let it be when these signs are come unto you that you do as occasion serve you, for God is with you. Here we see this private conversation that Samuel has with Saul. And it starts off with Samuel anointing Saul. It says, Then Samuel took a vial of oil and poured it upon his head and kissed him and said, Is it not because the Lord has anointed you to be captain over his inheritance? Now, anointing with oil uh, symbolized being supernaturally empowered by the Holy Spirit. Uh, Prior to this event with Saul, only two things had been anointed with oil. Uh, the priests were anointed with oil, their garments were, and then the, uh, their, also their, they had their, um, their, their, their bodies, they, they were anointed before they put on their priestly garments. But the tabernacle had also been anointed with this special oil as well. So what's interesting is now that Samuel anoints the person who's going to be the king with oil, Samuel is showing that Israel's monarchy is a divine institution. This is not something that's created by men. Now, this is important because remember, why did Israel ask for a king? We want to be like all the other nations. And the Lord says, I'll give you a king, but you're not going to be like all the other nations. <laughs> you know, This is something I'm going to set up. It will be my terms, my rules, my way. It's not something that, I'm not going to allow something that was created by men to, to exist in in this monarchy. Uh, and that's important because we're going to find that oftentimes when these kings, they act in ways that are like all the other nations do, that God is displeased. 
And we're going to see at the end of the chapter that Samuel's going to sit down with Saul and the leaders of the nation and explain how this is going to work under God's, you know, under God's care. Um, it's not going to be like everyone else does it. So it's important to understand that this is a divine institution, not something that God's just going to let them do how they want. Secondly, we see here that he kissed him. You know, Saul would need that anointing, that power from the Lord to be a good king, but he would also need the support of friends. And Samuel is showing showing Saul that his heart is toward him in this task, even though he had been opposed to the idea of a monarchy. And Samuel, Saul, I'm not opposed to you. You know, I want you to succeed. I want you to do well. I'm on your side. Now, Saul still probably doesn't exactly understand what's going on, so Samuel spells it out clearly in this third thing he does, and he says, is it not because the Lord has anointed you to be captain over his inheritance? The phrase, is it not, means do you still not understand why I'm doing this? Have you still not figured it out? The Lord has anointed you to be captain. Um, It means the official status of governing and leading. He has anointed you to be the ruler over his inheritance, his possession, his property. Again, Saul makes something very clear that this will be different. He says it's not going to be like other kingdoms. You know, he makes it clear that Israel belongs to the Lord, not to Saul. These are not his people to do with as he please, pleases. And, you know, and that's the job of all governing authorities. All governing authorities are actually stewards of something that belongs to God, people. People, he's the one that made them. They belong to him. So in whatever capacity of authority you find yourself in, whether you're a parent, an employer, uh, whether you lead a ministry or you serve in government, the people you lead do not belong to you. They are his inheritance. You know, there are two sides to that. One is a very humbling thought whenever God calls you to lead something because, you know, if if you're a parent, God gives you kids, it should humble you. You know, I remember um, me and Beverly had had so much good training on on parenting and so much good training on on marriage, you know, when when we were, because we were in a good church and... um, so we went in feeling very prepared. And, you know, of course, you know, you, you learn you can only be so much prepared for marriage and stuff. But the, one, the thing that really blew me away was having kids, you know, because I couldn't imagine that this little tiny thing that couldn't even talk with me correctly had its own personality, had its own wishes, its own desires, and frequently they ran against my wishes and desires, And it's important in that moment to recognize they belong to the Lord. It's humbling. But it's also awesome to know that that also means you and I belong to the Lord. We are his inheritance. One of the things that Paul prayed for the church at Ephesus is that they would know what it is to be his inheritance, that he would know what the inheritance of the saints is, that his inheritance in the saints. You know, the Lord, he is not... um, he is not embarrassed by you being a part of the kingdom, you know? It's not like, well, I was hoping you wouldn't get saved, but I guess you did, so we've got to let you in. You know, he's not embarrassed by you. He's not ashamed to call you a brother or a sister. The Lord is pleased that you are his inheritance. So, you know, those are two sides of that coin that I think it's important for us to understand. Now, from the other side, again, the humbling aspect that they are his inheritance, they aren't mine, they aren't yours, That means you and I will give an account of how well or how poorly we care for those that God entrusts to us, to our leadership. 
Because that's what a leader's job is, is to care for those they lead. The very nature of the word, like even pastor, we talk about spiritual authority or spiritual leadership. The word pastor, it means shepherd. That's what it means. It means someone who shepherds God's people. What did a shepherd do? He cared for the sheep. He led the sheep, loved the sheep, fed the sheep, cared for the sheep. Jesus, when he was talking to Peter, what did he say to him? You know, if you love me, feed my sheep, tend my little lambs. That's what a leader's job is to care for, is to do, is to care for those they lead. And you and I do that in whatever capacity we're leading, by serving, by being a good example, and, and by seeking the Lord about what direction is best. Now, <laughs> I think Saul's wondering, still wondering, how can this be? How can I be the, the ruler over God's inheritance? And so Samuel proves the truth of his words by Keeping his promise, remember he had told Saul earlier that before Saul became his guest of honor, he said, I'll tell you where the donkeys are, but first you gotta come be my guest of honor. So while Saul's wondering, how can this still be? How can this be? How can I be the king? Samuel proves the truth of his words by keeping that promise to reveal where the donkeys are. And in doing so, Samuel reveals three signs that will confirm this call from God to Saul. He says in verse two, the first sign, when you are departed from me today, then you shall find two men by Rachel's sepulcher in the border of Benjamin at Zelzah, and they will say unto you, the donkeys which you went to seek, they are found. And lo, your father has left the care of the donkeys. Now he sorrows for you, saying, what shall I do for my son? He says, the first sign you're gonna find is you're gonna run into two guys with knowledge of your found donkeys. I know you've been looking for days, you know, but you're gonna actually run into two guys randomly who randomly, <laughs> who know that the donkeys have been found, and they're going to let you know this. The phrase there, when you're departed, you shall find, the word there means to meet by chance, seemingly by chance. Of course, none of this is by chance, according to the Lord. And they will be by Rachel's uh, tomb, which means this is somewhere between Bethel and Bethlehem. We don't know for sure where Rachel's tomb is. When we go to Israel, there's someone who will, tell you, uh, who will take lots of your money to show you where the real one is. But we don't know for sure where the real tomb of Rachel is. Um, it's somewhere between Bethel and Benjamin is what Jacob described. Uh, but that's where back then they knew where it was. And so as a result, that's where you're going to find these two guys. And they're going to tell you the donkeys which you went to seek, they are found. And now your father, he has left the care of the donkeys. In other words, the phrase left the care means he stopped talking about the donkeys He's not talk, talking to people about, oh, the donkeys are lost. And now, what is he talking about? Well, he sorrows for you. The word sorrows there means to have a fear or a dread that produces worry. He is worried sick about you. You need to get home, saying, what shall I do for my son? Now, this was the original reason that Saul and his servant sought out Samuel. Remember, they couldn't find the donkeys, and the servant said, hey, there's a man of God in the town nearby. Uh, but Samuel doesn't just give them that information. He gives them more miraculous information. So now we come to sign number two in verse three. Then, after this happens, that I, I'm predicting will happen, then shall you go on forward from there, and you shall come to the plain of Tabor, and there shall meet you three men going up to God to Bethel one carrying three goats, one another carrying three loaves of bread, another carrying a bottle of wine, and they're gonna salute you and give you two loaves of bread, which you shall receive of their hands. Now, the word for plain there, the plain of Tabor, there is no plain of Tabor. The word plain just means a large, prominent tree. Now, you need to understand something. Because Israel's a desert area, for the most part, large, prominent trees are important landmarks because of the shade they provide. 
So they gave them names frequently. So this particular tree that was at Tabor, he says, when you get there, there shall meet you three men going up to God at Bethel. Now, why are they going to God at Bethel? Well, with no Ark of the Covenant at the tabernacle presently, the two are separated right now still, people turn to other meaningful locations uh, from their history to worship the Lord. Bethel was one of the most uh, well-known locations from Israel's past uh, known for worship. Uh, Bethel was the place where Abraham built his first altar to the Lord when he came to the promised land. It's also where Abraham returned to rededicate his life to the Lord after he'd gone down to Egypt and blundered with Sarah. Remember he went down there and he said, you know, tell everybody you're my sister because they'll kill me since you're still a very attractive lady. He said to her, you know, tell him you're my sister. And so they, he, she did. And as a result, people said, well, this, this is an incredibly attractive woman. You know, Pharaoh is an unmarried woman. You know, take her into your harem. So Pharaoh did. So, I mean, Abraham's stock shot up, but it put obviously his wife in an awkward spot and it put Pharaoh in a place where the Lord was not pleased with what he had done because he'd taken another man's wife. And so when Pharaoh found out about this, he confronted Abraham and sent him away, you know, tail between his legs. And so when Abraham got back to the promised land, he went right back to Bethel, and he he went there and worshiped the Lord and rededicated his life to following the Lord. So this is a very special place in Israel's history. Sadly, it would become an idolatrous place when the nation uh, split into two kingdoms, and Bethel was one of the locations for the golden calves that King uh, Jeroboam set up in the northern kingdom. So they went there to worship, and he says, when you find these three guys, they're going to salute you, which means to ask how you're doing. Now, remember that Saul and his servant were out of supplies when they went looking for Samuel. They couldn't offer anything to him. So they were doing pretty lean at this point. They didn't have supplies. So he tells me, he says, when they find out you don't have anything, they're going to supply some of your needs. So that's going to be the second sign. Well, verse 5, now we're going to get to the third sign. And after that, the second sign, you shall come to the hill of God, where is the garrison of the Philistines, and it shall come to pass when you are come thither to the city, that you shall meet a company of prophets coming down from the high place, and it's got all these manner of instruments. Now, the hill of God, the phrase, the word here, hill, literally is the word Gibeah. It means hill, but Gibeah is Saul's hometown. Um, it was later on called Gibeah of God after Saul became king, since Saul had chosen the king, to, uh, God had chosen the king to come from Saul's hometown. So after you shall come to Gibeah of God, when you come home, where is the garrison of the Philistines? Now, the garrison is a military camp, so Though Samuel had led Israel to a major victory over the Philistines five years earlier, um, Israel did not capture any Philistine land. They only recaptured their own land. So Saul, where he lived, it was right on the edge of contested land. That's how he lived all the time. This was always a very tense place. And yet, when he comes back, he's going to see this garrison, but it's not going to be tension he finds from his hometown. He's going to find this, he's going to meet this procession Uh, company of prophets. Uh, The word company there means a procession. Uh, It's not just a traveling procession, but it it means a religious parade. He's going to find this religious parade being led or being uh, consisting of these prophets. Now, I, I mentioned this earlier in our study of 1 Samuel, but the Levites were originally God's 
designed group to teach the people the word of God, to teach them the law. But what happened? We studied all throughout the book of Judges what were the Levites doing? They were constantly forsaking their responsibilities because the people weren't taking care of them. And so because their needs weren't being met, they forsook their responsibilities and they tried to find their way and provide for themselves doing other things. And we find compromised Levite after compromised Levite after compromised Levite. Well, even when the nation returned to God, the Levites never really ever, ever embraced their responsibilities to teach the word of God to the people. And so Samuel, he raised up this group. He trained up a group of people. He opened these schools that he called schools of prophets. They were known as the sons of the prophets. And these uh, men were trained preachers from these schools. So he sees this religious parade with these trained preachers coming down the hill, it says, from the high place, from the worship center that was in his hometown. And it, they, it says with a psaltery, a psaltery is just a, a stringed instrument similar to a guitar, with a tabret, a tambourine, uh, with a pipe, which is a flute, um, and then a harp, which strangely enough is a harp, Someone's awake. Um, before them. So there's music, there's worship going before this, this parade of preachers, and they're going to prophesy. So there's going to be music first, and then after they'll stop the music for a bit, and then they're going to preach. And they're just going to travel and do this. This is what they're doing. So this group had come from a worship service up at Gabeah, Saul's hometown, and now they're taking it to the next location. But they don't wait until they get there. They continue playing their instruments, continue singing, and continue teaching as they go. So it's kind of like a traveling church service. It's pretty interesting. And as the parade approaches, Samuel says, the Lord's going to empower you, Saul, to participate in it. It says, verse 6, and the Spirit of the Lord will come upon you. And you will prophesy with them and shall be turned into another man. Now, I think it's important that, that Samuel mentions the Spirit of the Lord is going to come upon you, Saul, because remember, he had anointed him with oil, and that symbolized that idea of the Spirit of the Lord coming upon you. Well, how does Saul know that's true? Well, he's about to find out. The word here, a phrase here, to come upon, it means to have an overpowering force replace a common force. I like that. You know, you and I are very common forces. It doesn't mean we don't have any skill sets. It doesn't mean we don't have any abilities. It doesn't mean we don't have any force. But we are very common forces. You know, I, frequently I'll have people come to me and they're a little bit of a panic at times. Uh, I felt this way many occasions as well. And, and they say, Pastor Will, you know, I was talking to somebody and I didn't know how to answer their questions. And, and I think, or their, their points that they brought up about Christianity or about the Lord, whatever. And, and I think, oh, yeah, welcome to the club. You're always going to run into someone who has more skill than you or has more education than you, more information than you, you know? Just because you lost one argument or you didn't have an answer to some, what someone brought up doesn't mean they're right, <laughs> okay? That doesn't mean they're right. I'm always fascinated by, you know, uh, public speakers and politicians and, you know, their ability to, to rattle off certain phrases and then look at you like, see, it's all over now. You, this is just how it is. And it's like, time out. First off, I don't get a chance to respond. And, then, and secondly, just even if you have a good point, that doesn't make you the end-all be-all, you know? There's nothing wrong with having to go and say, you know, I need to go back and get more information. We may have skill sets, but you're always going to run into someone who has more skill sets. There's always going to be someone out there who has more skill sets than you. That's why it's so important that we don't operate in our own skill sets. We operate in supernatural skill sets. 
You know, I remember, what is it, the text from John chapter nine where you've got the man who was born blind and they're questioning him, questioning him, questioning him, questioning him. And finally he goes, you know, why do you keep asking me the same questions? He goes, is it because you want to be his disciple too? Oh, and that made them so mad. He said, who are you to, you know, to say that to us? We, we follow Moses. We're educated. We're trained. We have all the information. We know the scriptures. And you're just a, you know, you were born in sin. You lecture us? Oh, I love the guy's answer. He goes, well, and they tell him, they say, they say, you know, glorify the Lord, you know, because, you know, we know this man is not from God. And he goes, listen, whether this guy is a prophet or not, I don't know. All I know is this. I used to be blind, and now I can see. And has it ever been told that someone opened the eyes of the blind without the Lord? I mean, I'm paraphrasing, but that's basically what he's saying. Have you ever known somebody to do that? They're dumbfounded. The only choice they had was to excommunicate him because they had nothing to say. This is a guy who's not educated, doesn't have the skill set to go to battle with these guys, but something's changed in his life, and he's responded to it. And the Holy Spirit revealed something to him, you know, put something in his heart. And so I love it. You know, here we see Saul who's not trained, he's not schooled, he's not educated in how to be a preacher, and yet the Holy Spirit will be that overpowering force to replace his common force. Don't ever, if God's calling you to something, don't ever say no because you say, well, I don't have the right skill set for that or I'm, I don't think I'll succeed. Well, you're right. You won't succeed if it's, you're going to tackle it on your own. But if the Lord's calling you where God guides, he provides, right? If he calls you to something, he equips you to do it. I'm living proof of that. And so he tells him, he says, Saul, you're not going to watch this parade and think to yourself, uh, you know, I've got something to say as well, but I'm I'm not so sure, you know, if this is the place. No, Saul's going to suddenly become empowered by the Spirit of God to do something he could not have done before, and he's going to walk right out there and he's going to join him. And he tells him, you shall be turned into another man. The word there, turned, means to be changed, to be transformed. Now, all of us here have a story, right? I mean, if you're born again, you have a story, some, some type of story. Your story might not be as dramatic as Saul's. As, you know, there was a parade of prophets, you know, and, and you joined them all of a sudden. But many of us have had moments in our lives where decisions were made to yield to the Lord, and you were never the same afterward. You know, we have those moments where we, my old pastor used to call it driving a stake, you know, driving a stake in the ground where you're, you're saying, I'm, I'm going forward from this point. I'm never going back beyond this place again. And probably all of us here have something like that in our lives. And some of you may have had multiple times in your life where you've kind of made that decision to yield to the Lord and your life was never, ever the same. You know, I remember, well, this isn't sharing too much information, but I was kind of the guy that chased the girls when I was younger. They were never being caught, but... I was kind of, that was the way I was as a teenager. I, des- I was a young, young kid. I desperately wanted to be married. Other kids wanted to grow up and do this, that, or other thing. I wanted a wife. I wanted to get married. I wanted to have a family, you know, and, and pursued it in all the wrong ways, you know. So I was the guy who was always chasing the girls, never caught one. And I remember, you know, the moment when the Lord grabbed hold of my heart. I was probably about 15 years old, and I'd, I'd come off a couple disappointing situations where I had pursued a couple girls. And I think I was 15 years old, maybe 16 years old. I can't remember exactly. 
And I came to the Lord as a young believer, and I said to him, I said, Lord, I'm done. I'm done looking for happiness and, and acceptance and, and companionship and, and trying to solve my loneliness problem. All I want is you, and I'm going to pursue you with all my heart from this moment forward. I want to be a different person. Now, when you, you, you go like that, you know, and you're, you're pursuing all these things for the wrong reasons, with the wrong heart, it creates problems. And I had a massive lust problem at that point in my life as a, a young man, young, you know, a teenager. And I remember things were different after that. You know, those problems started to go away. And the next six months of my life were a period of intense growth. I was never the same person again. People around me, they, did, they thought, you know, what's happened to Will? You know? And a particular young lady started to notice me a little bit. It was six months later when I wasn't looking at all, you know, for, for a girlfriend or anything that Beverly and I, had be, we had been friends before that, but we became very, very close friends. And, you know, we've been dating ever since. But you probably have stories like that too. It doesn't have to be dramatic like Saul's where you were prophesying with a bunch of, you know, you know, Bible college students or something like that, you know, or ministers. But you have moments when you drove a stake and you said, Lord, I'm, I'm making a change. And it's not so much that you made the change, but you made a decision to yield to the Lord and then he changed you, right? And that's what happened, will happen to Saul here, you know? In this moment, Saul would finally buy into God's call for his life. And instead of living life on his own terms, he'd make a choice to live a supernatural life in service to the Lord. And anytime you do that, you know, whether it's with a specific area of your life or with your entire life, anytime you make that type of decision, you're never the same afterwards. Well, Samuel then in verse 7 begins to instruct Saul on what to do after he sees these three signs, after he has changed into another man. Verse 7, and let it be when these signs are coming to you that you do as occasion serve you, for God is with you. And you shall go down before me to Gilgal, and behold, I will come down unto you to offer burnt offerings, to offer sacrifices of peace offerings. Seven days shall you tarry, wait for me, till I come to you and show you what you shall do. So verse seven, we'll start here. Let it be, which means let it happen. Let the Lord have his way in you. This is emphatic in the Hebrew. It's one of the most important parts of this verse. Let the Lord have his way in you, when these signs are coming to you, when you see all the proofs of what I'm telling you, let the Lord do what he wants to do in and through you. And then do as occasion serve you, as you find in your hand is what that phrase means. In other words, when God gives you this message to share, don't doubt, share it. Obey the Lord. Whatever God empowers you to do in that moment, do it, for God is with you. Now, this would feel so crazy for Saul. He's not trained. He's not educated. He's not a preacher. And yet the Lord says, when he calls you to do this and he puts the message in your heart, go and speak it because the Lord is with you. Listen, do you know that tonight? That the Lord is with you? That he loves you and that he has a good plan for your life? Listen, don't doubt it when he's telling you to do something. You know, maybe you're a husband here tonight, you know, and, and maybe, you know, the Lord's saying, hey, I want you to do this with your family. I, this is how I want you to lead them in the word of God, or this is how I want you to lead them in prayer. Don't doubt that that's the Lord. Don't think, well, that's a silly thought, or that's a dumb thought. You know, who am I? Who cares who you are? The Lord is with you. He's on your side. And if he's calling you to do it, then no matter how inadequate you feel, no matter how silly it seems, 
God is with you. Trust him, obey him, and let the Lord have his way in you. Now, after all these signs occur, Saul will be empowered by God's spirit to lead the nation, not just to preach a message. He will never be the same, but Samuel makes one last important point to him, one last set of instructions. Saul, you may be empowered to be the king, but you will never be the supreme ruler in Israel. That's God's role. So Saul, you're not gonna take on all duties. You're still gonna be a need to be a submitted man. And you need to leave the priestly duties to the priests and the spiritual leadership to me. Verse eight. And you shall go down before me to Gilgal. Gilgal is in the Jordan River Valley near Jericho. This was Israel's first camp when they entered the Promised Land. It remained their base of operations throughout the, conquer, the conquest of the Promised Land. Um, and it was still a common meeting place for the nation, especially when they were going to war. So it's possible that this would be when they would begin their war against the Philistines. That's remember chapter 9. God had told uh, Samuel, I'm going to raise this guy up to you know, rescue you from the Philistines. So it's very possible that's what this is talking about here in Gilgal. He says, and when you go down to Gilgal, and behold, I will come down unto you to offer burnt offerings and a sacrifice, sacrifices of peace offerings. Wait for me for seven days until I come, and after that I'll tell you what you should do. Now, no reason or timing is given for this event, so I don't know if my guess about getting ready to attack the Philistines is correct. But whatever's going on here, Whenever it happens, Saul was supposed to lead the people there, but wait seven days for Samuel to arrive before doing anything, before starting anything, because Samuel would lead the meeting and tell Saul his role in it. God will be with Saul as king, but Saul still needed to submit himself to spiritual authority. Israel's kings would never be the end-all, be-all figure in the nation, never, at least not until the Messiah, the one who would be prophet, priest, and king until he would come to fill that role. What's interesting, though, is if you know the history of the kings of Israel, is that time and time again, Israel's kings, even their good ones, overstepped in this area. They constantly were interfering in the temple, constantly trying to do priestly duties. If you remember, it was King Uzziah, who, who I think it was King Uzziah, who got very prideful and he decided to do the priestly duties. Remember, God turned him into a leper. He was a good king. He wasn't a bad king, but his heart was lifted up. He saw himself as that end-all, be-all figure in the nation. And if even good kings were doing that under God's leadership, is it any wonder that we see leaders overstep their authority still today? That we see them take on a, a bit of a Messiah complex or they take on this idea that they are the end-all, be-all and they let the power go to their heads. Listen, when you have power, there's always a temptation to take more power, which is why no government will be perfect until the Lord returns to reign. No system can keep that check fully in, uh, keep that power fully in check from the hearts of men. Not until the Lord returns to reign. His system will be the best because his heart can't be tempted by any of those things because he already has all power, right? <laughs> until then, the best leaders are those who exhibit humility, those who defer to the Lord's instructions. And that applies to government authorities, spiritual authorities, work authority, and family authorities. And so I ask you tonight, you know, if you're in a position of authority, you know, whatever, in any of those places, does that describe your leadership mentality? 
You know, that you defer to the Lord's instructions, that you lead with humility. Well, verse 9, let's see how it all pans out. Samuel predicts this, and it was so, verse 9, that when he had turned his back to go from Samuel, that God gave him, Saul, another heart, and all those signs came to pass that day. I kind of wanted more information, but the Lord doesn't give us more information except for the third sign. We'll get to that in a second. But I love it here that it says that the Lord gave him another heart. The, the phrase there, it means to change the essential form or nature of something. I don't have the ability to change my heart. I do have the ability to change my mind. The Bible tells us to do that. It says, the Lord says, come, let us reason together, right? I have the ability to change my mind. This is where... We, we find a lot of this confusion between, you know, what we would call free will and the sovereignty of God. You know, uh, those who really believe absolutely strongly in the sovereignty of God, they confuse the scriptures that talk about our hearts with our minds. That's not, the Bible doesn't say that God controls our minds. The Bible doesn't say that our, our mind is in bondage to sin. The Bible says that it is affected by the fall, but we still have the capacity to choice. And so it tells us to as many as received him, to them he gave the right to be called the sons of God. That being true, I don't have the ability to change myself. I don't have the ability to change even my heart. The Bible says the heart is deceitful and wicked above all things. Who can know it? I can't even understand my own heart, let alone change it. So while I can change my mind and God commands me to change my mind, that's what repent means. It means repentance. The word means to change your mind. So God commands me to change my mind, but his promise is when I do that, he will change my heart. When I humble myself and I decide to be obedient to the Lord, I may not have the ability to change my, my whole attitude towards the Lord, my heart towards the Lord. I don't have the ability to actually fulfill what I'm saying I'll do, but when I humble myself and decide to obey the Lord, God gives me grace. He pours out his grace upon me and he transforms my heart. So, it's important when you pray or when you're committing things to the Lord, I say, oh God, you know, you know, you know please help me to, to make better decisions than that. The Lord, he doesn't do that for us. You know, we make the choices and then he comes alongside and he undergirds those choices. It's so important for us to, to make those clear decisions. You know, I catch myself even sometimes when I'm praying, you know, I say, Lord, help me, you know, so I can be a better dad and I can do this. And, you know, and I, I sense that Lord just in that, still small voice saying, Will, I will help you, but you've got to make some different choices, right? And when I do, every time I do, the Lord undergirds that decision. He gives me the grace that's needed to transform my life and transform my heart so I can be what I'm choosing to be in obedience to him. You know, Saul, at this point in time, he could have made excuses to reject Samuel's words. He could have chosen to disbelieve Samuel's words. He could have done any number of things at this point but he chose to believe the Lord. And when he did, God gave him another heart. You say, well, it doesn't say that. Well, how do you know he chose to believe Samuel's words? Well, we know he did because Saul went where Samuel told him to go. He didn't go straight home. He went to Rachel's tomb first. And then he went to this other place where he met the three, where three guys were on their way to Bethel. And then finally he went home. That's not a straight line if you look at a map. So, Saul went where Samuel told him to go, and everything happened just like Samuel said it would happen. Now, the only one that's mentioned in detail is the third sign, so verse 10. 
And when they came thither to the hill, to Gabeah, his hometown, behold, a company of prophets met him, just like Samuel said. It says, a company of uh, prophets met him. The word literally means happened upon him. Uh, Just like God said, it looked like happenstance to him, but it was all orchestrated by the Lord. And the Spirit of God came upon him, Saul, and he prophesied among them. Saul joined in their procession for a bit because he sensed the Lord's leading and he preached just like they were. Now, verse 11 shows the city's reaction to Saul preaching. And it came to pass when all that knew him before time, they knew him before this moment, they saw that, behold, he prophesied among the prophets, and those people said one to another, what is this that has come unto the son of Kish? Is Saul also among the prophets? Now, this is not a real question. This is a derogatory statement meant to communicate that Saul's life didn't match up with what they saw from the man who was in the midst of all these other prophets right now. You know, Saul didn't go to the schools. Is, this, is that really Saul? I mean, I've, Saul's never preached in his life. I've, in fact, I never even thought he was a spiritual man. So it's a derogatory remark. What's he doing out there? This doesn't seem to make any sense. But one person pipes up to defend Saul, verse 12. And one of the same place answered and said, but who is their father? Therefore it became a proverb, is Saul also among the prophets? What is he saying, but who is their father? Well, being a prophet wasn't hereditary. It wasn't linked to a specific tribe or family like the priesthood was. These were men who had come from all sorts of different tribes. They weren't Levites or just Benjamites or whatever. They had come from everywhere. It was an appointment by the Lord. And so when he's saying, yeah, but who is their father? He's saying, if God gifted these men with the ability to teach, why couldn't God pick Saul too? And this silenced the critics so much that their, this reply became a saying in Israel, anyone, someone had a radical change of heart, you know? In other words, if Bob all of a sudden had this radical change and he would become a different guy, people are going, I don't, I don't buy it. I can't. And they would say, oh yeah, is Saul also among the prophets? That was a saying they would give. And so when they would see something like that, they'd go, oh, yeah, that's right, God can do anything. He can change anybody, you know? That was the proverb it became in Israel. It's interesting, Paul used the same argument, Paul the apostle used the same argument to prove that God can save anyone. For he too had been changed from the old Saul to a new man. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 2 with me. You have to wake up now and turn the page. First Timothy chapter 1. I may have said chapter 2, but it's chapter 1. 1 Timothy chapter 1. I love what Paul says here. He is urging, you know, Timothy uh, to be faithful because he says, Timothy, I, I left you at Ephesus to pastor the church while I was gone for what I thought was just a very short season, but I am not going to get back to you in the time I thought I was going to, and I'm writing this letter so you can know how to be a good pastor, so you can know how to conduct yourself in the church to lead them. And he encourages this very timid young man who's nervous about his leadership role there, doesn't feel quite capable. And he says, listen, if God picked me and he, uses, he used, changed me, he can pick you and use you. In verse 12 of chapter one, he says, and I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has enabled me for that he counted me faithful putting me into the ministry who was before a blasphemer and a persecutor 
I was injurious. The word there means insolent. I mean, I was just an arrogant fool. But I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was exceeding abundant. It was overflowing with faith and love, which is in Christ Jesus. God did so much in my life. And so this is a faithful saying. It's worthy of everyone to accept it. No one should deny this truth, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. I am the worst one that ever lived. Howbeit, that's okay, because for that reason I obtained mercy. God showed mercy to the chief of sinners that in me first Jesus Christ might show forth all longsuffering. He would show everyone how patient he is for a pattern to them which should hereafter believe on him to life everlasting. Timothy, if God can change me and if he can raise me up like this after all I did, he can use you. He can use anyone. Doesn't matter who you've been. Doesn't matter who you are right now. If you will change your mind, God will change who you will become. That's why it's called good news, right? It's not bad news. Like if you ever come to church and you feel like it's, oh, that's just bad news. If you're saved and you're feeling like it's bad news, then either somebody communicated something incorrectly or you misunderstood it. Either way, something wrong happened because it's great news. I go to bed every night knowing that I am my beloved's and he is mine. Do I always feel that way? No. But the Bible says when our hearts condemn us, praise God, God is greater than our hearts because he knows all things. I don't know all things. He knows all things. So when I'm feeling a certain way and it's strong and overwhelming, I can say when my heart is overwhelmed, lead me to a rock that is higher than me. I'm not on a place that's the highest place I can be. I might look out and from, I might think I can see a whole lot. I might think I can really read the situation. And it might look like bad news. <laughs> but David, you know, he said, lead me to a rock that's higher than me. Lead me to a place where you are, where you see everything. So I don't have to depend upon how I see things or how I feel about things. But I can see through your eyes. I can see it because you've revealed it in your word. Lead me to a rock, a stable place that's higher than I. You who know all things. It's good news. It's great news. Well, back in 1 Samuel chapter 8, after this event occurs, Saul finally reconnects with family. He goes into the town, 1 Samuel 10, verse 13. And when he had made event, the end of prophesying, he came to the high place, the worship center, and uh, when he finished, it says that he, Saul's uncle said unto him and to his servant, whither went you? Where you been, man? Now, Saul's uncle here is a man named Ner. He is Abner's father, and Abner will become someone we'll get to know because Abner will become Saul's general. So there was closeness here between Saul and his uncle. It doesn't tell us why Saul went to the worship center first instead of going to his house first, uh, but his uncle apparently stayed after this worship event was over, and uh, he is Saul's first contact with a family member. And he tells him, he says, where you been, man? You've had us all worried sick. And Saul, I gotta love this answer. Go look for the donkeys. Where do you think I was? Saul paused, hoping that that would be a sufficient answer, but when his uncle doesn't reply to that, Saul knew he had to tell his uncle about Samuel. And so he said, well, 
when we saw that they were nowhere, when we couldn't figure out where they were, we came to Samuel. Now that got Saul's uncle's attention. He was curious when Samuel's name came up. And so he says, well, tell me, I pray. I mean, that's, that's pretty crazy. He's the most famous guy in all of Israel. What, what happened there? And so Saul said to his uncle, well, he told us plainly that the donkeys were found. That's why we're home. But of the matter of the kingdom, whereof Samuel spoke, he did not tell him. So Saul doesn't reveal everything, just enough to get his uncle off his back. Now, that's it for Saul's side of the story. Now in verse 17, we shift back to Samuel's perspective as he's going to announce God's choice. He's going to announce that Saul is God's choice for king. So verse 17, and Samuel called the people together unto the Lord to Mizpah. Mizpah is the same place, if you remember, five years earlier where Israel made things right with the Lord and they defeated the Philistines. And he called them together unto the Lord. I love this. He reminds them, you know, you asked for a king, but God will always be your ruler. Not me, not a judge, not any king. He's going to lead you into this next phase. And he said unto the children of Israel, verse 18, thus saith the Lord God of Israel. Here's God's message to you on this very important day. It's a short message. I brought up Israel out of Egypt and delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of all kingdoms and of them that oppressed you. That is a short message. But it's an important reminder. One of the easiest mistakes to make is forgetting who got me where I am. It's a very easy mistake to make. And reminding them of this truth is all God has to say to them in this momentous change. I have to tell you that when I was studying this and I read that, I had to pause for a minute. Because I thought, Lord, how many times have I forgotten that truth? That I'm where I am right now because only because of you because of all the messes that you've gotten me out of that I put myself in. You and I cannot do anything without the Lord. Jesus said, without me, you can do nothing. Nothing is a very complicated word in the Greek. It means no thing. Okay, someone's awake. I heard a giggle somewhere. Man, rough crowd tonight. No thing. You can do no thing without me, not a single thing. But how often do we go about without taking time to hear from him, to actively let him direct our lives? Sometimes it's just a matter of getting busy with our normal routine, right? Because we figure, well, I can do this. It's my normal routine. It's a, we call it a routine thing because it's not complicated. It's something we routinely do. You know, humility, first off, means being real with myself. It means recognizing my ever-present need for the Lord. And the Bible is full of beautiful promises for the person who has that kind of a humble heart. You know, we read in Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, the famous one that probably all of you could quote it. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, not in your own understanding, but in all your ways acknowledge him and he'll direct your paths, right? It's a simple, beautiful promise to take him into account in all that we do. Unfortunately, Israel did not do that. They decided they knew best how to care for themselves. Verse 19, Samuel, based on God's very short message, he preaches to them. And you have this day rejected your God who himself saved you out of all your adversities and your tribulations and you have said unto him, no, we don't want that anymore. You've been doing all this for us but we don't want that anymore. But set a king over us. Now therefore present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and by your thousands. 
The thousands there refers to their military units. And so everyone, all the tribal leaders, all your soldiers, want you all to assemble in groups to recognize this momentous day that you chose, that you picked because you were displeased with the setup the Lord had given to you. Although all God had done wasn't good enough for them, Samuel reminds them the Lord's still in charge. So step forward by tribe, make sure your best soldiers are present so you can see who God picks. This won't be your pick, this will be his. So verse 20, when Samuel had caused all the tribes of Israel to come near, it says the tribe of Benjamin was taken. So likely he had the tribal leaders come up and the, out of all of them was selected. It doesn't tell us how they were selected or chosen. Uh, it mentions that the tribe of Benjamin was selected. So when he had caused the tribe of Benjamin to come near by their families, so now they stepped forward by their family groupings. And it says the family of Matri was taken. Uh, We don't know who Matri is. He's just a descendant of Benjamin. But we do know Saul and his family are part of that grouping because it says when then those families of Matri were brought forward by the individual families, it says Saul, the son of Kish, was selected. So this is the moment, the moment of revelation. However, when they sought him, he could not be found. How do you pick a guy when you can't find him? Like how did he get picked? I don't know. It's very interesting to me. I personally believe that this was not done by lot. A lot of people say, well, they picked lots, like drawn straws, or you know, they consulted the Urim and the Thummim, and they said, is it Levi? And they pulled it out, and the stone was no. Is it Judah? And they pulled out a stone? No. And then when they pulled out, you know, is it Benjamin? They pulled out the other stone, and it was yes. I don't think it was probably that way either, because it mentions here, verse 22, therefore they inquired of the Lord further. They asked again of the Lord if the man should yet come here. In other words, if he was still in his way, maybe he hasn't arrived yet. And the Lord answered, behold, he has hid himself in the stuff. He is, he's hiding in the equipment. Now, that's not something you could figure out with a stone. I mean, you know, or the Urim and the Thummim. This is not something you figure out by lots. You know, where is he? Well, here's the 18,000 things that could happen. I I can't imagine that would be. I think they were directly asking the Lord and God was speaking to them through Samuel or someone else and saying, hey, this is what's going on. I'm picking Saul. But he's not there when they pick him. He's hiding himself in the equipment, the travel gear that had come with everyone. In other words, Saul wasn't lost. He did this on purpose. Now, why in the world is Saul hiding amongst the equipment? It doesn't tell us why. But we can infer two things. (laughs) Number one... I'm pretty sure we can know for sure that he is hiding because he believed what Samuel had told him was true, that he would be picked. He believed that he was the king. And secondly, we can also probably infer for sure that he didn't want to be visible when that moment arrived. Now, we could suggest that Saul didn't like being in the limelight or that he was a humble guy. That may very well be the case. But if if it tells us anything, it tells us that Saul believed God's word was true. Now, that's not the same thing as faith, by the way. Faith trusts that God's word is best. That's different. But faith can't really happen until we believe his word is true, right? So that means... Saul's at least on the right page. Whatever we might think about his motive for hiding, we can call him a scaredy cat. We can, we can say he was humble. We, you, I heard all sorts of sermons on why Saul was hiding in the stuff. I have no clue why. But it means he's on the right page, that he believed God's word was true. Now, to become a good king, he's going to need to learn to trust that God's word is best as well. And that's part of what we'll find out if he eventually becomes that later on. 
When they find him, verse 23, and they ran, this is a big moment, who had God chosen? We gotta find out. Well, he was someone imposing. They fetched him from there, and when he stood amongst the people, it says he was higher than any of the people from his shoulders and upward. And Samuel said to all the people, do you see him whom the Lord has chosen? There's none like him amongst all the people. And all the people shouted and said, God save the king. Literally means let the king live. We are cool with this choice. He is a good specimen to represent and lead us. There was no guarantee that people would accept God's choice, but for the most part, they do so enthusiastically. So in verse 25, Samuel explains to everyone God's rules for this new office. Then Samuel told the people the manner of the kingdom, and he wrote it in a book, and he laid it up before the Lord. And Samuel sent all the people away, every man to his house. And Saul also went home to Gibeah. Now, the word there, manner of, of, of the king, it just means the law, the plan, the regulations. In other words, this book outlined God's rules for the relationship between the king, the monarchy, and the people. My guess is it probably gave more details on the things already commanded in Deuteronomy 17, which we read in our scripture reading, as well as any other commands that we found in the law of Moses for leaders and how they might relate specifically to a king. So this makes this document a little bit more, that Samuel wrote, a little bit more like a commentary than scripture. And I bring this up because people go, why don't we have this book? There's lost books of the Bible. Just because the Bible records that books are written doesn't mean they're lost books of the Bible. It's more like a commentary, like someone might write today. It's more like what I'm doing today. I hope that the Lord's speaking to you, you know, uh, the way some of you are looking at me tonight. I, I don't even know if you're hearing anything, but I hope the Lord's speaking through me, but I'm not inspired. Please don't ever mistake that. The Word of God is inspired. So what Samuel did here today, I hope it was the Lord, but it wasn't inspired in the same way the Scriptures are. So we don't need it since the Lord didn't see fit to put it in the Word of God. This was set up before the Lord. That usually refers to the tabernacle. And after that, Samuel explained all this. He sent everyone home, including Saul. Apparently, the document didn't have any mention of the people building Saul a palace since he was the new king. Well, a palace isn't what a leader needs to do their job well. What they do need is good help. And so it says, there went with him a band of men, a large group of soldiers whose hearts God had touched. Isn't that awesome? Everyone can't be a leader, but anyone can come alongside the one that God picks to lead to help them. And that's God's design for leadership. It's to give one person a vision and then to raise up people around them so that every one of them can use their gifts to move forward together to fulfill that vision. That's God's, that's what we see, the pattern in Scripture of leadership. And so how cool must have this been for Saul? How much of a blessing it is, you know, when you become this, you know, to those who lead the ministries that you're a part of. Sadly, however, everyone wasn't on board with God's choice, for it says, but the children of Belial, literally it means the sons of Satan. I don't think this was like a group, like they met at like the sons of Satan synagogue or something like that. It, the word sons of Satan just means wicked people. And they said, how shall this man save us? and they despised him. In other words, this guy's not a military commander. He's not even a soldier. How's he gonna lead us to victory over the Philistines? Here's a truth you need to understand, especially if you lead people. No matter how much you shine through preparation, experience, or even your personal presence, like Saul had, there will always be those who see what you lack instead of looking at what God will supply. And that is why you can never seek validation for your call from God from anyone but the Lord. Now, 
if everyone's telling you it's not the Lord, then you should probably listen. <laughs> Certainly, having those who support you is great. But once you've stepped out in faith to embrace God's call for your life, your confidence in what you're doing must come and be rooted solely in his call. You see, they despised Saul because they despised the Lord already. They thought they knew better, and so they weren't impressed with this man. However, look at Saul's response. They didn't bring him any presents, but he held his peace. He didn't retaliate. He remains humble. And we're called to do the same. Jesus is our example. Where it says in 1 Peter chapter 2, when he was reviled, he did not revile back. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 21 through 23, and I'll leave you with this. For even hereunto were you called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps. Who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth. Who when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he committed himself to him that judges righteously. You know, what a great beginning for Saul here, a humble start. And whether you started this way or not, you can make a fresh start tonight by deciding to have a humble heart as well. Let's all stand. Well, Lord, we thank you so much for the fact that you picked a guy like Saul, Lord, and he is not what we would call a success. We know his story and how it ends, and yet, Lord, we see his humble beginnings, his humble start. And so, Lord, wherever we're at, whether we've got a a past that looks more like Saul's ending, a present that isn't where it should be, Lord, you've promised us that if we humble ourselves before you, you'll give us grace for our future. And so we want to be those who do that tonight. We commit to you and say, Lord, we humble ourselves. We want to do things your way. We want to confess right now that we believe and trust your way is best. And so we lean into you, Lord, to not lean on our own understanding, but in all our ways to acknowledge you, knowing you'll direct our paths. Thank you, Lord, for hearing every heart tonight that's praying that. In Jesus' name, amen.